All right. I think we um set to go. All right. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing again. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this hour that you've granted us and this day also to gather around the matters of eternity, the matters of Christ, the matters of salvation, the matters of God's dealing with man. And we thank you for the testimony of Christ Jesus, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and the testimony of the Scriptures. We thank you for this hour that you have appointed. And as many as have gathered around the teaching, we ask for your blessing upon me as I teach, and also the blessing of ears and eyes for those who have gathered to hear. Lord, may you bless each and every one. We ask for your blessing as we begin this book of Romans all the way through to the end. May you help us with understanding, I pray, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, good morning again, everyone who is connected with us. And I pray that you are doing well and that you have joined us because you are looking for the one thing, the matter of Christ, the matter of your standing before God, the matter of salvation, because that's the business. That's the business of true religion. The business of true religion is about the things that cannot be seen, eternal realities. And so when you come, have a high expectation of what you have to hear. Don't just go into church to go to church. You have to have an expectation you have to be able to listen, have ability to listen. Just because someone is saying some safe things, some religious things, does not mean that they are telling the truth or they are speaking to the real issues of salvation. So we have to be able to listen carefully, okay? So today we begin our teaching verse by verse through the book of Romans. We still have the book of Exodus. We'll come back to the book of Exodus once every month until we get to the Red Sea. But for now, three times in a month, we are going to be in the book of Romans. And we'll begin in Romans chapter 1. And we mostly use the New King James and we are going to read from verse 1 to 7, verse 1 to 7, and you're going to have to be patient. There's a lot of things to talk about, and these are all needful things. They help to establish the foundation of our understanding of the book. So in Romans 1, verse 1, Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, recorded and said, Paul a born servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness 
by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the word of the Lord. And for titles, we have two. Number one, introduction to Romans. Introduction to Romans. And number two, God's gospel. And after more than seven years, seven years of contemplating to get to this book, the Lord has finally granted me a most wonderful opportunity to come and speak to the matter of his gospel as he gave it by his spirit in the book of Romans. And you may not know this, but this is such a wonderful blessing to me. It makes me very happy that the God of eternity was pleased to grant me the time and ability to come and speak to the matters that respect him and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I am very happy and excited to open these pages that I may glean and behold with you all and share the matter of how God has brought me and his people into his eternal blessedness. And I'm going to argue at the very outset that if the professing church world understood the book of Romans, understood the book of John, Ephesians, and Hebrews, we would come to the unity of the faith and much of the foolishness that passes for gospel would be buried in the dumpster of history. And many so-called gospel ministries and preachers will close shop and will be collecting unemployment benefits. <laughs> but they will not close up shop just yet because God has purpose with them. And for them to deceive all those who refuse or deny the truth, whom God, according to Apostle Paul in Second Thessalonians 2, God gives over to a strong delusion that they may believe a lie and be condemned. God gives over people to a strong delusion because they did not have a love for the truth. So this is serious business. But those who are of Christ, who hear, because the Lord said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The sheep hear the voice of Christ. And the voice of Christ is not some audible voice. It is the voice 
of the gospel. The gospel is the voice of Christ and all the redeemed of Christ who hear because of the Holy Spirit who is in them. They are given the ability to separate that which is true from that which is false. But we'll go to Romans and develop some understanding so that we may set the stage for our teaching. And if the Lord tarries, I believe it will take us upwards of two years to go through the whole book. Let us talk about the general things about the book without getting bogged down into the details because we are not here writing a PhD thesis, but to preach the gospel. The writer or authorship of the book of Romans right there at the outset is identified as Paul. And there's not much debate about who actually wrote the book. But Paul used a scribe by the name of Tetius or Tetius, according to Romans 16, verse 22. He said, I, Tetius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. So it was commonly accepted practice in the day of Paul to use a scribe to transcribe one's message and depending on the matter, the scribe could be given some freedom in composing the ideas or they were given detection, they copied word for word of what the actual writer meant to convey, which to me, it seems that's how Paul did or employed in Romans, given the complexity of the theological discussion, that is not something that he would have given much freedom to anybody to write. He would have detected word for word what he wanted to be communicated to the church at Rome. And to the time of writing, you're going to find a lot of opinions if you do your reading, but the best date is a D57 plus or minus one or two years according to those who have devoted the time in constructing the chronology of the life of Paul. This was written 20 years into the ministry of Apostle Paul. So he had his ducks in a row as far as the understanding of the gospel. The readership and the audience. Readership or audience, it was the Christian community at Rome composed of Jew and Gentile. And the proportion leaning towards a Gentile majority as Rome was Gentile territory. And this church was not established by any apostle, but most likely by the Roman Jews 
who were converted at Pentecost, according to Acts chapter 2. They were among them Roman Jews who were converted. And when they went back to Rome, they brought back their faith to their synagogues. There were synagogues in Rome, and they shared that new faith with the Gentiles who were there. Also among them in the synagogues were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, so-called the God-fearing Gentiles. So those would have been some of the earliest people to adopt Christianity in Rome. Now, to the nature and genre of the book, this was and is an epistle, was a letter in the form of a theological treatise that is not coming because of any particular local issue that needed to be addressed as was with the Galatians or the Corinthians. The Galatians had local issues of the Judaizers who were coming and saying, for you to be fully saved, you need to be circumcised. You need to add Moses back to Christ. Okay, so that was the particular issue in the book of Galatians. And then, of course, with the Corinthians, there were all kinds of foolish things that were happening there. So Paul was handling or dealing with a lot of issues in the Corinthian church. But that is not to say there were no issues in the Roman church because even though Paul had not yet been to Rome, he had not been to Rome at the time of writing, he had Roman connections who were his countrymen, also believers in the person of Priscilla and Aquila. So he would have had some understanding of what was happening in the Roman church. Okay, But fundamentally, this was a writing to define the gospel in the context of Jew and Gentile relations in the matter of the law the matter of the place of Israel in salvation history and God's commentary on these matters because if you're reading the Old Testament, salvation is fundamentally a Jewish expectation. The Messiah is Jewish. It is the Jews who have a very high anticipation of the coming of the Messiah and the Gentiles are just the sinners who are just kicking it and do not know or share much interest in the matter of salvation. And the Holy Spirit now begins to flesh out all these issues to say this is what God is actually doing by the advent of Christ Jesus. Potential problems at Rome. Some of the potential problems or issues that may have necessitated the writing of the book of Romans. There are a number of things there that we'll probably talk to as we progress with our teaching, not necessarily today, but as we go through the teaching in the book of Romans. But we have 
Jewish believers in Rome, obviously, and we also have the Gentile believers. And the Jewish portion of the believers may still, may still have been struggling with the idea of winning anyone from the law, not wanting to be weaned of the law and saying, how can we have a Jewish Messiah who does not impose people under Moses and saying it is still binding and also on the other side of the Gentile Christians, there may have been some arrogance towards the Jews and causing a potential split. And so we're going to see some hint of it in Paul's theology in Romans 9 to 11. He's going to talk about Jewish-Gentile relations and saying, oh, you Gentiles, don't be conceited towards the Jews. Okay? So Paul writes to even out these things and puts Jew and Gentile on the same footing. Okay? So he puts Jew and Gentile on the same footing and the church at Rome being the church that Paul did not find or establish also. If you read the New Testament episodes, this is the only letter that Paul wrote to a church that he did not establish either. He was writing to a church that he did not establish. All the other epistles of Paul, he had written to churches that he had pastoral responsibility because he had a hand in the founding of those churches. To the theme, many things can be said because there are many underlying themes in the book of Romans because of some of the issues that we talked about. And some of those themes have more weight than others. But fundamentally, the gospel is the theme. Justification by faith for both Jew and Gentile. And this gospel, as I've always said, has many moving paths and cannot be understood correctly apart from an understanding of the many things that surround it, some of which are sin, the matter of sin, and the guiltiness of all humanity, regardless of race. Both Jew and Gentile are guilty before God, and thus hopeless, apart from this revealed way of salvation that comes by way of Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus is the center of history and salvation. And the past and the future cannot be understood apart from his gospel. In other words, Christ is he who interprets all matters of history. He is the only one who matters. He is the one who divides the old and the new. Christ 
does that. And he establishes eternity. The old is represented by Adam. The founder of it, humanly speaking. Who comes with his own powers. Adam representing the old creation comes with his own powers. Sin. The law. The flesh. And death. And hopelessness. Are the powers that Adam brings. You have to understand this. <laughs> Adam represents the old creation and its powers. And the powers of the old creation are seen the law, the flesh, death, and hopelessness. And this is where all men find themselves apart from Christ. They remain under the powers of the old creation. And then there's Christ, the new, who brings his own powers to bear upon the powers of the old creation. And this is what Christ brings, grace, righteousness, his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he brings life, justification, adoption. And this comes by way of his death and resurrection as the cause and marker of the advent of this new era, of the new creation. The death and resurrection of Christ becomes the point that separates the old from the new. And the only way to come out of the old era of Adam is by being joined to the new Adam. That's the only way to come out of it. You can't come out of the old creation by not doing things. Do not touch, do not handle. I am getting better. You cannot better your way into the new Adam. You can't progressively get into the new Adam. It's either you are in the old or you are in the new. So the only way to come out of the old is by being joined to the new Adam, and that is union and identification in his death, burial and resurrection, and this forming the only basis of righteousness, the righteousness of God which is freely imputed to all who believe. So by the advent of Christ, God is saying, no to the continuity of Moses. This is the end of Moses. This is the end of Adam. Because the just shall live not by Mount Sinai, not by the law, but by faith in the Son. That's revolutionary. It's revolutionary. Moses has come to his end by way of fulfillment in Christ, by Christ, who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. 
but there are other subheadings to deal with in the light of Christ, the hope of the believer. There's the hope of the believer. In chapters 5 and 8, freedom from sin and law, 6 and 7, God's purpose for national Israel in the context of the revelation of the Messiah. That's Romans 9 to 11. And the life of obedience, that's chapter 12 to 15. So Paul is preaching the gospel and its implications of fruits and touching on many other related topics. Okay? And with that introduction, we'll go to our text. That was introduction. Okay? We'll go to Romans 1. This one. Paul says, Paul, a born servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And that, as we have discussed, introduces us to the authorship of the book. It was written by Apostle Paul, who introduced himself by his name, and in two ways in which he related to Christ. And number one, as the born servant of Christ. And born servant is doulos. And secondly, as an apostle. As a born servant, a slave of Christ. This was Paul's way of preaching the gospel of God's grace in salvation. It is very purposeful on his part. The usage of that word by Paul was very purposeful because it expressed or captured a lot of the gospel that he preached and how he related to Christ. Being a born slave of Christ, he was drawing drawing us, even his audience, to the understanding that the matter of salvation and the calling to declare it was imposed on him. He did not choose it, even though now he has been made willing. A sinner choosing is not in the syllabus or vocabulary of sovereign grace salvation. <laughs> As a slave, he had no rights to exercise in this matter, let alone to do otherwise. Here, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17, Paul says, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Why? For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I have no other choice. 
For if I do this of my own will, the free will, <laughs> I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. I am preaching this gospel not according to my will. It was imposed on me. Necessity was laid upon me as a burden on me, a responsibility that he could not shake off. And everyone who had Paul identify himself as a born servant had an idea of slavery. They understood that it meant that one had no rights. Secondly, they understood that it was imposed on the slaves or the slave. And if salvation and the ministry of the gospel was imposed on Paul, it means what? It means election. Because slavery is not something that one uses their so-called free will to get into. No one ever votes or elects themselves into slavery. It is always imposed. So by just that introduction, Paul has done away with the notion of human free will in salvation. He has done away with the understanding that people have power to choose or reject Christ. There's no one who has ability to choose or to reject Christ. Paul has done away with the thinking that salvation can be lost. Salvation cannot be lost because it is not according to your will. Salvation is imposed. Paul has established by this very usage of born servant, the doctrine of God's gracious election, which he shall develop further in his teaching. Secondly, Paul said, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. And by this he was speaking to the vocation of which he was called and who put him into that vocation. It was not his grandparents. It was not his mother or father who did this. And Paul says, an apostle. He was not doctor apostle. He was not doctor born servant. He was not right reverend Archbishop Paul. Because we see and hear these titles now. He was an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle which means a send one. Christ was and is the apostle of our confession, but he is the sent one, the sent one, that's Christ. And when Christ sends a person, he brings the message that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, will unfold to us. That's how you can tell if someone is coming from Christ, they bring the same doctrine as Paul gave. There's some doctrine as 
John gave the same doctrine as you find in the book of Hebrews. But Paul is writing to a church that he did not find or establish and had not yet visited, as I said. And we shall explore some things as the teachings unfold. Okay? But it was necessary for him to authenticate, validate his credentials to them before he came as he was preparing to go to Spain, because Paul was just going to use Rome as his port of call to go to Spain, and this letter is there to prepare for that. Okay? But it's not that the saints at Rome did not know about Paul necessarily, or that there was any controversy around his authority. But this was just a standard protocol in introducing himself because of the matters of which he was discussing. They needed authentication from an authoritative force, a doctrinal treatise on salvation, so that they may understand who they were dealing with. So Paul's personal identification as an apostle was not suggesting at all that there were problems in the Roman church that needed him to first be vetted necessarily, unlike what had happened in the Corinthian church where there were some who were coming and wanting to be regarded the same as the true apostles of Christ Jesus and causing unnecessary division. If you still remember with the Corinthian church, there were some who called themselves the super apostles, yeah? <laughs> but here is Paul authenticating his call and office to the Corinthian church. First Corinthians 9, let's go there. First Corinthians 9, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 11, 4 to 6. 2 Corinthians eleven four to 6, Paul says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. 
Yes, I may not be able to speak as well as these other super apostles, but when it comes to the knowledge of Christ, I am not inferior. That's what Paul is saying. Second Corinthians 12, 11 and 12. Second Corinthians 12, 11 and 12. I've been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Signs of a true apostle. Many in our day who call themselves apostles are yet to perform any true sign because there are no more apostles who are in the fold of Apostle Paul, of Apostle John, of Peter, and the like. Just about everybody who calls themselves an apostle are just making it up. They just love the title. They are making it up so that they can carry weight and have control over the ignorant masses as they hypnotize them with their foolishness. It's hypnosis with foolishness. Men love titles. I see women apostles on Facebook. They are there. Doctor, apostle, reverend, whatever name, they love the titles. But there's no apostle, not of the fold of Apostle Paul. They are just not there. But names aside, it is interesting that those who love and carry these titles also do not know the gospel. Now, how can one be an apostle from Christ and not know the gospel? That's how I check them out. How can one come from Christ and claim to be an apostle of Jesus and yet be clueless of Christ's message. Here, Galatians 1, 11 and 12. Galatians 1, 11 and 12. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Many claim a revelation from Christ, claim to have seen Christ in a vision, and yet still preach a false gospel. The two don't go together. If you saw Christ, if you heard from Christ, then you have to tell the truth. Galatians 2, verse 6. Verse 6 to 8. And from those who seemed to be influential, these were Peter, James, and John, what they were makes no difference to me. 
God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. They added nothing to Paul. Paul did not learn the gospel from John or Peter or James. Because nothing can be added to a sinner by another sinner. That's Paul's point. They added nothing to me with respect to my standing before God. There is nothing that they did that improved my standing before God. That commended me as righteous before God. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, verse 7. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's to the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Poisoning. We had the same source of power. The same power of Christ working through Peter was the same power that Paul had. And so Paul was proved to be a true apostle of Christ by reason of the gospel that he received directly from Christ and the gospel that he preached. And by reason of his miracles and signs and by the acceptance of the leading apostles, Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem. And he was commissioned to do his ministry to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles. That was his primary audience. That was his primary audience, the Gentiles. So Paul is authenticated through his epistles. His call to become a gospel preacher and apostle of Christ. But in his gospel ministry to the Gentiles, it was unavoidable that he would encounter the Judaizing element or influence of the day, that is, those who were seeking to mix law and grace as is still happening today. The Judaizing element says a lot of correct things, but they always try to smuggle the law through the back door under the guise of morality. And for the Jews, because of tradition, the Jews were trying to smuggle the law because it was their tradition. But in our time, people are still trying to smuggle the law in the name of moralism. So in his writings, he has those in mind also to put them out of business. They have to be put out of business. The Judaizers need to be put out of business if we have to remain in the truth of Christ. And so to get all the gospel pieces together, he has to expound the law and put it in its proper place in its subservient place. And he will connect the matter of law and sin, of faith and righteousness, and how God transects and deems one to be righteous. 
and you connect how the Jew and Gentile relate to one another in salvation history on account of Christ. So Paul, what was this born servantship or born servanthood about? What brought you into this situation? Let's go to verse 1 again. Paul, a born servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So he was called to be an apostle. And who does or did the calling? It is God. There's no one who calls themselves to Christ. Jesus says no one comes to him unless it has been granted them by the Father. And they've been drawn of the Father. And they've been taught of God. No one comes to him unless those things happen. But Paul says he was separated to the gospel of God. Paul was set apart. Chosen as a vessel to God. Marked out for the purpose of the gospel of God. Before he was separated as a Pharisee to his sect of Judaism. But now the real separation has arrived by way of Christ. And Paul's own separation in Judaism, though it seemed righteous to him, at first, as he gave testimony in Philippians chapter 3, that his righteousness according to the law was blameless. He thought he was righteous before he came to the truth of Christ. And when he came to the truth of Christ, he realized that his righteousness according to the law was a death trap. And so he called it loss and done. <laughs> loss and done. Much of what is called progressive sanctification, which is advancement in righteousness, is just loss and done. There's no righteousness there. There's no righteousness there. The only true separation, the true sanctification, is that which God has done in Christ. True separation with respect to God is not separation in morality because the Jews already had that. But separation of redemption, separation of possessing the righteousness of God. Because the Jews, as Paul would later tell us, had zeal for God. And yet their zeal, high in moralism as it was, profited them nothing as long as they remained ignorant of the real subject matter, of the real issue, which was and is the righteousness of God. That's the issue. There are many Gospels that are being preached this day and have been preached and will be preached today. Many Gospels. Yes, they have in them the name Christ Jesus. They use the language of grace. They speak a lot about holiness and sanctification. 
and yet are still not the gospel of God. Because the gospel of God is a very specific message. The gospel of God is not the gospel of Paul. And it is not the gospel of John. And it is not the gospel of our church. It is not the gospel of the reformed seminaries. It is the gospel of God according to Paul, according to John. It is the gospel of the one God, which means there's only one gospel, one God, one gospel, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, one Lord Jesus, one calling. And people are not entitled to what they want the gospel to be in a quest to protect their false traditions or their seniority in the church. You are not saved better because you think you were saved 25 or 30 years ago. It doesn't help if you were saved by a false gospel. It is still a false gospel. It profits nothing. There's no seniority in the matter of salvation. Because salvation happened before you even showed up. The question that you and I have to answer is, do we believe in the gospel of God? And right in verse 1, Apostle Paul has defined what we are dealing with. We are dealing with Christ and we are dealing with God. So the gospel is God's message. It is his work that he designed and accomplished by Christ Jesus. It is the good news, good tidings that comes from his desk. It's coming from his desk. So God, the true God, is ultimately the main subject of Apostle Paul's writing. The true God is the subject. And that true God is revealed in the gospel. This is what I read in the usage of words and terms in the book of Romans. The word God occurs 153 times in the book of Romans. 153 times. And that is an average of once every 46 words. And this is more than in any other New Testament book. In terms of the other words that are used in Romans, this is the frequency. Law is 72 times. Christ is 65. Sin is 48. Lord is 43. And faith is 40. And that tells you that the book of Romans deals with many different themes but it is a book about God. It is a book about what God determined to do from eternity and is done in the revelation of his righteousness in and by and through Christ in the salvation of a certain people called the elect. 
God's gospel has election as one of its main pillars. Because there's no gospel without election. There's no grace without election. Grace supposes election. Okay? So the book of Romans is about God and his righteousness as is the whole Bible. The righteousness accomplished by Christ and imputed to the elect because of Christ. Righteousness freely imputed. The law, sin, faith are all in service to that righteousness. They do not cause righteousness. Doing the law does not command one to God, especially one who is a sinner. One born in Adam because the flesh profits nothing. So there are many things that necessitated the imputation of righteousness, chief of which was and is God's glory, which he will not share with any other, nor boasting. And so you and I could never contribute anything towards our own salvation, even for that reason alone that God does not want anyone to boast. So if there's any formula of salvation that causes you to contribute anything, by default, it's false. Also, our very sin made it impossible to be righteous by anything of our doing. Because righteousness is about perfection. So the very fact that we are sinners makes it impossible for us to be saved apart from God's grace. And so Paul comes and says he was separated to the preaching of the gospel of God. And yet he was not the gospel. He did not cause the gospel to be the gospel. He was only raised and separated to declare it. Just as the newsreader is really the producer of the show, they're just contracted to read the news. I am not the gospel, and you and I are not the gospel. We are recipients, we are beneficiaries of the gospel. So now to the question, when did God begin to publish this matter in the history of humanity? Of course, this was a matter that was always known to him from before the foundation of the world. But when did he begin to publish the matter? Verse 2 of Romans 1, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel is not a new thing. It is God's gospel that he promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And that to say, the prophets of the Old Testament were God preaching the gospel. This is how the old and the new relate to one another. They are gospel scriptures. The old prophesied the gospel and the new is the fulfillment, the actualization of what was prophesied 
and that is the unity of the old and the new, they are united and intersect in the one person, Christ Jesus, united as one, but one is a shadow and the other being the substance. The old being the shadow and the new being the substance. But united in the one message, if you look carefully to the shadow, you see the same message, God's gospel, as we have been finding it with the testimony of Pharaoh. And that God's gospel is about his righteousness, not our own. They are united in, or in that this one gospel is about the imputation of God's righteousness. This is a recurrent theme in much of the Old Testament teaching. That is why we do not shy away from preaching and finding Christ in the Old Testament because that's what That's the proper use of the Old Testament, to find Christ. Now here the contrast between verse 2, what Paul has said in verse 2 of Romans, and what he encountered in Athens in Acts 17. Let's go to Acts 17 from verse 16 for a comparison or a contrast. Acts 17. Luke records and says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Aeropagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They had itching ears and wanted to be tickled with something new. But Paul says this gospel was not new. That's the contrast. It is actually very old. Paul was not bringing something new to the Jews or new to the Gentiles. He was bringing something old. Something that God promised, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this gospel has nothing to do with you in respect of its coming to fruition. 
It is revealed to us. It is brought to us. But it is not caused by us. And by saying that it was promised in the Old Testament scriptures, Paul is saying the Old Testament canon anticipated this gospel. It was there in the shadows and the types. And much of the exposition about this matter that will follow will come from the very same Old Testament scriptures. Paul is going to go to the Old Testament to build his theology of the gospel. And this was the pattern of all those who preached the gospel. They pointed back to the Old Testament scriptures as their source of authority and interpretation. Even the Lord Jesus said in John 5, 39, you know we always love to quote this verse, you say the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify or bear witness of him, the Old Testament scriptures. We see that with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading from Isaiah, and Philip came and he asked him if he understood what he was reading, and the Ethiopian eunuch said, how could I unless someone showed me or taught me? And Philip took him from the scripture and preached Christ to him. Peter, Stephen, in Acts 7, Apostle Paul, arguing with the Jews in the synagogues, they preached Christ from the Old Testament. And if the scriptures testified of Christ and God's gospel that was promised, then who and what does it concern? That's a very important question. Romans 1, verse 3 and 4. What does it concern? Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. God's gospel concerns his Son. We can't move away from this unless we understand that it concerns the Son. God's gospel concerns Christ. The moment that you make the gospel about you and your doing is the moment that you have veered away from the truth of the gospel. The gospel is not about making America great. The gospel is not about raising children. The gospel is not about being a good and faithful wife or husband. The gospel is not about being baptized and getting to be a morally superior person. It concerns the Son, whose name is Christ Jesus, who is our Lord. And that to say, Jesus is the center. He is the cornerstone and foundation of this gospel. 
And he is not coming to bring a new way to make people better. He is not some other good teacher who is bringing a better morality and religious ethics. Christ is the gospel. He is it. He is the center and is the good news. Christ is the good news. But who is this Christ Jesus? For there to be good news, the Christ has to be defined. If your Jesus is not defined, he can't bring you any good news. So who is this Christ? The text says, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And that speaks to the incarnation of Christ, the clothing of the Logos with human flesh. That's what happened. That's John 1 verse 14. He tabernacled among us. The Lord Jesus is called the son of David. And he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and came from the line of Judah as the promised son of David who would come and sit on his father's throne. And that identification was very important to declare, especially to the Jew or an Israelite, or even to the Samaritan woman. But the Samaritans were very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, especially the law, the five books of the law, and had very high messianic expectations. So that definition of Christ is important. According to his flesh, from the line of David, son of David, and conceived of the Holy Spirit. So, that tells us that Jesus has two natures. He has a human origin with respect to his flesh and yet sinless. And his flesh was sinless on account of his conception. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Not because Mary was a virgin. Even virgins are sinners. Because they're born in Adam as the five foolish virgins. So the humanity of Christ was proven by his birth and his death. Secondly, to the other nature of Christ, Jesus has an eternal existence. He pre-existed his coming in the flesh as the Logos. As the word of God, according to John 1, verse 1 to 3. But he did not just pre-exist. Because angels did precede or pre-existed the birth of Jesus. Angels were there before Jesus was born. And yet they are not in the same league as Jesus. Angels are not eternal beings they were created by Jesus, according to Colossians chapter 1. Angels have birth certificates. In other words, they have dates of origin. But Christ was from the beginning. He always existed as God. So Jesus is God in respect of his nature and divinity. 
But this is how Jesus relates to God. He relates to God as the Son. As Son from eternity and as Son in the incarnation. And Christ is also Son with respect to his position, his sitting, and his exaltation. And the scriptures seem to suggest that Christ was exalted and given this title on account of his obedience or after his obedience. And the false sects who say Jesus is just an exalted angel go to such texts that seem to suggest that Jesus and his position or and his sonship, but he was never the son of God in his nature, like deity. They don't get it. They don't understand the text. This is speaking to the exaltation of the humanity of Christ that has been joined to the Logos. Jesus was always exalted as God from the beginning. After all, it is he who created all things. All things move and have their being in him. He holds all things by the word of his power. So he was always God. So the exaltation that is happening is happening in the light of what happened to him in taking up human flesh and becoming a human, becoming a bond servant and dying on the cross and being buried and coming out of that humiliation and then seated on the right hand of God. It was not speaking to Christ earning his position necessarily to be God. You can't earn your way to being on the side of God. You can't progress to become God. It's impossible. Okay? The resurrection evidenced that Christ was more than a human being. It was a declaration of his person and power as one who had power over death. And God alone has power over death. There's nothing that dies that can raise itself back to life. I saw a few days ago a National Geographic movie recording of a honey badger that got bitten by a puff adder, a very venomous African snake. And if you know anything about honey badgers, you know that they are as tough as they come, right? <laughs> They're made of steel. Fearless. But that honey badger passed out for two hours after it had gotten the bite. And then it came back to life and continued to eat the snake that had bit it. But the honey badger did not resurrect from the dead. It had just passed out for a minute, having been overpowered by the venom. And when Lazarus died and resurrected, he did not resurrect by his own power. He was resurrected by an external power. Christ is he who commanded for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. But Christ 
did not pass out. He did not pass out the honey badge away. He died and resurrected himself to life. He did it by his own power. Here, John 2, John chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. John 2, 18 to 22, John says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here Jesus again, still in the book of John, John 10, 17 and 18. John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge or this commandment I have received from my father. Jesus is claiming that he had power and has power put put down his life and to take it up again without needing any help from anyone. And of course, there are scriptures that say Jesus was raised by the father and also by the Holy Spirit to say, The resurrection of Christ was a Trinitarian work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the point is that Jesus was not overcome by death because of an inherent weakness in him. He submitted himself to death. Death could not take the life of Jesus. No nails or whips could take life of one who has life in himself, who is life himself. Life belongs to Christ. That's who he is. He is the living God. Everything else does not have life in itself. It is derived from God. We have to eat to continue to live. We are dependent on God keeping us or else we die. That's not the same with Jesus. So it is he who gave himself to death that he may render powerless the death that was on his people. And I'm going to say this. If one does not believe in the resurrection of Christ, they are not a Christian. But believing in the resurrection is not what makes you a Christian. Because even the Judaizers believed in the death and resurrection of Christ. And yet Paul called their gospel another gospel. Why? Because they were trying to add something to Jesus. So you can say 
a whole lot of things that are true about Jesus. But the moment that you add to grace, the moment that you add to Jesus, you have another gospel, even if you believe in the, in the death and resurrection of Christ. Understand me? So what makes you a Christian? The righteousness of God. That's your testimony. The righteousness of God is what makes one a Christian. Because it captures both the person, that is the identity of Christ, and the work of Christ. All that is found in the righteousness of God. Because there's no righteousness of God apart from the true Christ. Okay? So what is the good news that comes by way of this Christ, verse 5? And it means we have two more verses to go. What is the good news that comes? Verse 5. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Through Christ. Not through the Pope. Not through Mary, the mother of Jesus. Not through our families. But through him, we have received grace. We hear and now possess this grace. Grace infinite, grace unchangeable. We already have it. Not that we shall receive grace when we reform ourselves and become better people. Not that we shall receive grace when we get baptized. We have received grace. And a man can receive nothing unless it has been given them from above. This grace is from above. This grace was purposed and given from before the foundation of the world. But it has now been made known, made manifest by the appearing of him whose name is Jesus Christ. So Paul had not just received grace, but he also received his apostleship. And his apostleship was to the end that he may declare this grace. That's what the apostleship of Christ and even of Paul was all about, to declare the grace of God. But what was this grace for? What was this grace for? Was it for men and women to make money and become successful people? Because a lot of ministries are founded on these false notions of grace. Was it grace for people to create new and big businesses and enterprises? No. It was grace for the obedience of faith. Even among all the nations for the sake of his name. But Paul, you are a Jew. And writing to Gentiles, predominantly Gentiles. Why should the grace that you speak of, not take these Gentile nations back to Moses, back to the law. Do you see, this is something revolutionary that Paul is saying. Obedience has to be obedience to the law. No, 
obedience to the faith. Obedience to the faith. Obedience of faith. There's a clear distinction being made. Obedience of faith. And by this Paul has laid another foundational piece or pillar of his gospel. The obedience of faith. That's the gospel that we preach. That is the message that is consistent with the righteousness of God. His gospel is to the obedience of faith. That is what separates it from all other forms of religion. And many who do not understand this gospel will see obedience and say, see, Paul is saying our obedience to the moral law. That is foolishness. (laughs) That is foolishness. The obedience of faith is obedience to the gospel of God. The obedience of faith is obeying what God says about Christ. The obedience of faith is not in doing things to be righteous, but in agreement and in resting. Yeah? In that form of doctrine in which the righteousness of God is set forth as the only way of life and salvation. I have to repeat that. The obedience of faith is agreeing and resting in that form of teaching in which the righteousness of God is set forth as the only way of life and righteousness before God. And that is a remarkable message coming from a Jew. A Jew should bring an obedience to the law, an obedience to Mount Sinai. But this gospel says, no, it is an obedience of faith, an obedience of looking to Christ and trusting in him, an obedience to the righteousness of faith, which came by the faithfulness of Christ. In obedience of faith. Listen to me, someone. Because you always hear these people accuse me of being an antinomian. The truth of the matter is they don't even know what I'm saying. They can't hear because they can't. Unless God teaches them the truth. In obedience to faith looks to a work that is already done. Not to a work that is in progress. An obedience of faith is a resting faith, not a working faith. There's no restless leg syndrome in this business of faith. The obedience of faith is the rule of life of all the redeemed. That's the rule of life. The obedience of faith. That's what you're battling with to understand this Christ. To understand this righteousness of God, that is the obedience of faith. And Paul says in verse 6, among whom you also, you also are the cord of Christ Jesus. From among the nations, you also, believers 
who are in Rome are called of Christ Jesus. Christ called you to himself. Christ called. If you are looking for Jesus, if you have any interest in the truth of Christ, he did the calling. <laughs> he does the calling. No one ever calls on God. We only return calls, but we never initiate the calls. God calls. And he leaves a missed call. They say, yeah, it's me. I was calling for you. Go read your Bible and you hear what I was trying to tell you. <laughs> That's when God calls. He sends you to the scriptures that you may behold of his Christ and learn of his righteousness. Okay? Verse 7, that will be our last verse. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome. Now people will come and say, see, Paul said all, and that means all who are in Rome without exception or without distinction. Is that what Paul is saying? Who are these who are away the all in Rome? The text tells us who they are. It is those beloved of God. <laughs> now, question. Did God love all those who were in Rome? Did God love Nero? No, not at all. Does God love all those who are in Columbus, Ohio? No, he does not. Does God love all those who are in America, in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, in South America? No. God does not love all people in the world without exception or without distinction. Not at all. Who does he love? The text says, those called saints. You see that if you have the New King James, it says called to be saints and the to be is in italics because it's not there in the original. And it's important for us to know that because you're not being called to be something. Because if you're called to be something, it implies that sainthood is something that you work your way to be. You are already a saint. You are chosen, set apart. So those who are beloved of God are called saints. Okay? And these saints are they who are obedient to the faith. So if you are obedient to the faith, you are a saint. And what is that saying? What is that statement saying in verse 7? It is saying election in Rome. It is saying election of those who are the saved in Rome. Because only those elected to salvation will believe and obey faith, in other words, the gospel. Only those who are elected to salvation will believe. And to these people, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul is preaching the gospel in every line, people. He is. He says grace and peace from God. Because that is the gospel message. That is Paul is bringing to them and is bringing to us. Grace and peace is the summary of God's gospel. That's what it does. It is the message of grace and it brings peace to God's people. God has granted grace to those who are in Rome and all who are called of Christ, of like precious faith. And this message of grace comes with what? It comes with the message of peace. And peace means there's no againstness between the saints and God. There's no enmity between the saints and God. That's the message of grace. In spite of the many sins of the saints. <laughs> this gospel. There's no peace without a complete reconciliation. And by virtue of God bringing this as good news, he is saying all those who are the saints of God have been completely reconciled to him. They've been fully justified. They are fully sanctified. Grace has done that. Christ has done that. The blood of the cross has made peace for his people. And to you, all who believe, the Lord says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, brethren, was our introduction to the book of Romans. And be praying that the Lord will continue to grant me ability by his Spirit to speak and bring that which is faithful and true for the sake of his name and for the sake of his people, the saints, not just those who are at Rome, but who are everywhere where Christ is preached according to the truth of this gospel. Okay? So we praise God. Amen. We are done. Let us go before him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Apostle Paul as you gave him the gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of God's righteousness, the gospel of grace and peace, the gospel of an obedience of faith. We thank you for all these wonderful words, for they bring peace to God's people, because peace was already established for them by the blood of Christ. We thank you that there's nothing that we can add to this wonderful and perfect work. Lord, cause us to believe it, cause us to rest in it, cause us to rejoice in it, that in spite of our many sins, we have peace. We thank you for this hour. Thank you for the message. We pray for all those who tuned in to listen. Be with them and bless them. Grant them also ability to come back and hear some more of what you give me to preach. 
We honor you, glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.